How's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Uh, welcome to December and uh, the 75th episode of X Labs. Uh, today is the three month uh, month anniversary, I guess. Uh, started this program on September 1st, and here we are on December 1st. So pretty crazy, and it's uh, it's interesting how quickly time goes by when you're you know not paying attention. But uh, today. We have another double-digit book here. We're going to bring Excalibur Volume 4 into the double digits with issue number 10. Uh, This had a June 2020 cover date, and uh, let's get right on into it here. The story is called... uh, I'm never never very good when we have X's in titles here. It's either Verse 10 or Verse X. I'm, I'm pretty sure it's Verse 10s, considering everything we've seen so far. But it's Verse 10, A Crooked World, written by Teeny Howard with art by Marcus Toe. Colors, Eric Arshaniga, Letters, VCs, Corey Petit, Designs, Tom Muller, Head of Exus Hickman, Edits, Beasel White Sabolski, cover price $3.99, and went on sale June 10th of 2020. So it's an interesting one because, uh, of course, this is after the uh, big shutdown this spring. So we're having a book that's cover dated in June that actually hits shelves in June. Uh, that's pretty interesting, uh, at least if you ask me. But if we open this sucker up here, we open with our roll call. And today we're going to be focusing on Gambit, Rogue, Richter, Jubilee, Shogo, Betsy Britton, and Pete Wisdom, followed by a double-page spread of credits. Then an info page, which looks like a very low-effort propaganda poster, which is kind of a shame, because I think this could look really cool if they weren't going for the minimalist Dawn of X info page look. Jason would talk about how he likes it when the info pages look like something that he'd like to own, and uh, I feel like... This could have been one of those, but eh, they, they just went the info page route here. And it's a flyer that is preparing London for an all-out war with Krakoa. And it's actually really cool, but could have been just so much cooler. One thing on this poster that's probably worth mentioning is the phrase protect and survive, which has almost got to be a reference to these informational pamphlets and PSAs from the late 70s that were created to teach, you know, British folks what to do in the event of a nuclear attack. I tell you what, these videos are available on YouTube here. Um, easy to find. And they are really, really weird. They're almost surreal, uh, especially being all the years that we are removed from that. Uh, these PSAs were created by uh, Richard Taylor Cartoons, and uh, I couldn't imagine what I would have thought had I seen them as a child. I'll try to remember to link to a uh, Protect and Survive compilation in the show notes. Uh, even if even if you just take a quick peek, I'd say it's worth your time just for how like low-key horrifying it is. It's very, very weird. Um, I'd actually 
planned to use Protect and Survive as a hook for an episode of the Cosmic Treadmill. Um, sometimes we would create entire episodes around a hook. The hook, if you're not familiar with the Cosmic Treadmill, was like our ending segment, where we would t- sort of kind of tie whatever it was we were reading into some sort of a real-life thing or a cultural thing or just maybe another fictional thing. In this case, uh, we were going to cover a uh, book called When the Wind Blows by Raymond Briggs, which is about an elderly couple that use some of the protect and survive methods uh, after a nuclear attack. They're in London, I believe, and uh, the attack is from the Soviet Union. And uh, we were going to do that purely to facilitate the connection and have the ability to talk about protect and survive. Uh, We were also going to uh, have a discussion about the BBC film Threads from the 80s, which deals with some very, very horrifying and sobering fallout from a nuclear attack. So, so yeah, I guess even if this page just said Protect and Survive, I'd probably find myself really digging it. Uh, if there's anyone out there who wants to talk about Protect and Survive and Threads, please let me know, as I, I'd be down for that. Okay, so comics, right? We're here for comics. Let's do some more comics. We're in London, where the streets are just being bombarded with missiles and whatnot. Betsy Britton and her crew are also on the street, wondering where this airstrike is coming from. They suddenly find themselves attacked by the military. Betsy tries to reason with them in the name of Queen and Country. These soldiers ain't buying none of that, and they they inform her that they are to shoot Krakoans on sight. Richter splits the earth to buy Excalibur some time, and so they go running to the nearest Krakoan gateway. What they find instead are Jean Grey and Professor X parade floats being burned in effigy and a destroyed portal. And it's at this point I want to paraphrase our the theme song for this very program and say, well, how did we get here? Um, I actually had to double-check the cover to make sure I didn't accidentally pull Excalibur number 11 out of the box instead of number 10. Because, yeah, this, uh, this sure feels like we're at a massive disadvantage here, doesn't it? When I saw this book was indeed number 10, I immediately assumed that I goofed up the episode numbering again and I'd forgotten to cover Excalibur number 9. So I I was reading this in bed. I had to pull my ass out of bed to run across the house to the recording room so I could double-check exactly what we covered last time we talked Excalibur. And no, we're exactly where we're supposed to be. We did cover Excalibur number 9, and this is Excalibur number 10. But how... How in the hell did we get here? Okay, so Betsy, she goes to plant another gateway seed, to which Richter says it ain't gonna work. He already tried that. You see, London has been warded against mutant powers, perhaps the work of a certain group of LARPers. Rogue suggests that they bug out to Otherworld, but Betsy ain't able to to pull the body slide. Gambit suggests that maybe they just steal a boat and get the hell off the island, to which Betsy assures him that... If Britain, England, the UK, whatever, wherever we are, is indeed at war, there won't be a single boat available for them to take. Just then, an airship flies overhead, piloted by... Call me Kate? Hmm, okay. I suppose this could be an opportunity for me to joke about how little communication seems to happen between our Dawn of X books, and that uh, maybe Teeny Howard is unaware Kitty died like four, five, six months ago, but... This is really just a hint that things aren't exactly what they appear to be. Whatever the case, Excalibur gets on the boat. Betsy and Kitty chat for a bit, and we learn that the missiles hitting London are indeed Krakoan in origin. But the whole thing's a setup, right? It's gotta be. 
All mutants have been called back to the island to reconnoiter, and that's exactly where Kitty intends to bring Excalibur. Betsy asks how this ship is able to fly, to which we see that it's being controlled by Rachel in her old hound getup, which is odd, but pretty neat. Kitty explains that she went to the lighthouse first, in hopes that Excalibur would be there, only, you know, they weren't. Pete Wisdom, however, was. And now he's very, very dead. Betsy decides that she's got to get back to the lighthouse, but Kitty has her orders. Everyone is to head back to Krakoa. Betsy ain't taking no for an answer and threatens to just fly there herself if Captain Kitty won't oblige. And so, to the lighthouse they go. And it's here where things begin to clear up just a little bit. We see that this whole scene is a reality warp, courtesy of that weirdo, Jamie Braddock. A pocket reality, if you will, probably... So Jamie can explain how the Legion of Superheroes got their inspiration from Superboy, even though Clark Kent never was Superboy, right? Right, maybe? I don't know. It's a pocket reality that that much we know for the moment. Now Jamie has this whole world in his hands, literally. It's all swirling in a red orb, and he stood before a table that Morgan Le Fay is strapped to, so he's probably in Apocalypse's lab. Uh, I'm not exactly sure what the point of this is. Uh, Jamie wants to start a war, I guess. Uh, he also seems to want to rebuild the Captain Britain Corps. I don't know. I'm kind of lost here, though in fairness, I'm also kind of dense. Now, back in the pocket reality, which is designated by the Marvel Wiki as being Earth TRN 839, Betsy is trying to protect the lighthouse from an assumedly Krakoan missile blast. I gotta say, I'm not a fan of Gambit referring to Betsy as Capitan. I feel like they've known each other a little too long to be quite this formal. Anyway, Gambit is able to absorb the energy from this missile, which all but clarifies that they are, in fact, not physical missiles, and thereby probably not Krakoan in origin, just made to look that way. Betsy puts two and two together and realizes that her weirdo brother has concocted this entire situation. Jubilee wonders what might be next, since, you know, Jamie has walled himself off in other worlds, starting wars and whatnot. Before she can really get too much of a thought out, she's speared through the shoulder by a unicorn's horn. And we pan back and see that, yes, this was an actual unicorn horn attached to an actual unicorn being ridden by that weirdo, Jamie Braddock. Betsy asks what the game is here, what, what's going on? To which that weirdo compares this concocted conflict between Britain and Krakoa with some sort of internalized dissonance that Betsy herself might be dealing with. You know, questions like, where does she belong? Krakoa as a mutant, or Britain as its captain? And it's actually quite an interesting concept. I really, really dig it. Uh, Betsy demands to be taken back to reality, to which Jamie informs her that this is her reality. You see, he just made her. His Betsy, the real one, she's still in Otherworld where we left her last issue. So this fake TRN-839 Betsy is who Jamie intended to reboot the Captain Britain Corps with? Maybe? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, Betsy then uh, psychically assaults her weirdo brother, but is unfortunately taken out by an incoming missile strike, so uh, I guess she's dead. As she lies there, her four teammates rush over to her. Reality begins to shatter, which even affects the panel borders, which looks really cool. Rogue, Gambit, Jubilee, and Richter then all touch Betsy's amulet and find themselves transformed into all-new Captain Britons. You know, the ones we saw in last issue's cliffhanger. 
Now we wrap up at the Citadel, where Saturnine declares that these new Captain Britons are pretenders. She orders her fleet of priestesses to kill them, and, well, that's where we leave it for today. We do get an info page, which covers the incursion of reality via that weirdo Jamie Braddock. Uh, how there were, you know, two Betsies, and how the pocket one led to there being four new Captain Britons, I think. Yeah, that's that's where we leave it. Uh, next episode, welcome to the double digits, New Mutants number 10. But let's talk about this. Let's try to make sense of this here. Uh, I should probably start by saying I uh, I shouldn't have liked this. I really, really shouldn't have. It goes against pretty much everything. Anything I want to see in an X-Book But I really enjoyed it Uh, And maybe I ought to take my temperature or something This feels all sorts of wrong Um, I just felt like this was a lot of fun Um, I hope that the otherworldliness that we're in for with X of Tens is more like this And not so much like the first six or so issues of this volume that we saw If I gotta pick one, it's definitely gonna be this I will say that the introductory portion of this issue, this issue was perhaps a little too far off from where we left things last issue. And I mean, this is no fault of anybody's, but you gotta consider that this is compounded by the fact that it was almost three months since the last issue came out. So, I mean, Excalibur number 9 came out in March, now we're in June. Again, not a fault of the book itself or the creative team, but maybe something Marvel could have considered. Of course, nobody's going to care when they read it in trade, which is, like it or not, what the industry is banking on nowadays anyway, but for the month-to-month and week-to-week reader, this is a little bit jarring. Now, despite the fact that the opening bit was so jarring that I actually had to dig through long boxes, pull myself out of bed to dig through long boxes to make sure we didn't skip an issue, like I said, I, I, I did quite like it. But, you know, while I'm picking nits, one more thing, one more thing. Remember when we looked at Marauders number 9, and we saw that fake-out death of Pyro and Emma Frost? And when we saw that, I said that, uh, you know, I totally bought it, because mutant deaths are happening at such a staggering rate these days. And there seems to be very little in the way of consequence, so, you know, there was absolutely no doubt in my mind that Emma and Pyro were dead, and they'd probably be back in a few pages anyway. Well, with this issue of Excalibur, we saw Kitty Pride show up, right? Now, my first assumption wasn't the obvious fact that things weren't exactly as they seemed. Instead, I legitimately thought that we were either being told the story out of order, and, you know, as we've seen many times to this point in Dawn of X books, where it's like, we don't know where certain stories are happening, or maybe that word hadn't made it to Teeny Howard that Kitty was killed off six months before this issue came out. That's not a good thing, though it might just be a Chris thing. There certainly is a pattern of behavior here, though, that I don't know that we should uh, ignore. You know, these, these stories aren't quite as tightly knit as perhaps they could be. So, uh, yeah, I said I enjoyed this, didn't I? So let's start saying nice things about it. Uh, we could start with the art, which was awesome as always. I really dig these Captain Britain core designs that the entire main cast gets. Uh, I really like uh, Jubilee's Union Jack shades. They're particularly cool. I like the internalized struggle of Betsy here, having two homes and seeing that standing by either one is going to put the other one out a bit. So she's Krakoan and British by birth. It's a very interesting angle. Um, I mean, also taking into account that she's the only Captain Britain left, and she doesn't even live there. 
So you got to wonder how the British citizens view this sort of a thing here. Is she a traitor? Is she, le- is she a lesser captain than her brother was, or anybody in the corps, for, for that matter? It's very interesting. A lot of meat on that bone. Uh, the kitty scene was fun. Everything made sense. Um, I mean, a flying ship is a bit fantastical, right? But when we discover that it's only flying because Rachel's controlling it, we can accept it because we understand the context. I, I think this is actually some pretty deft storytelling because it zigged when I was totally expecting it to zag, you know? We were in this surreality, right? We didn't know what was what, which way was up. And then we see an airship and it's like, okay, I'm done. I can't suspend my disbelief anymore. But then we get on board it and we see that it's Rachel controlling it and that brings you back into the story because it makes it makes enough sense. You know, we understand what these characters are able to do. So suddenly a flying ship is a little bit less surreal than it would have been otherwise. So I was expecting it to go one way. It went another that bought me just a few more panels of buying into the story. And then they dropped the, the hammer on us. So this was pretty cool. I'm not ecstatic to see that we're going to be dealing with Saturnine next issue. But, I mean, we've still got one more issue to go before we start seeing, you know, the Road to X of Swords branding on these comics. So I suppose it stands to reason that this story would have to be stretched out just a little bit more. Overall, this was probably not my favorite issue of Excalibur so far, but it might be the one I've had the most fun with. So I I think uh, this is a net positive. I'd give it a thumbs up. This is one that uh, you should check out. This was a fun, fun time. But that's all I got to say about Excalibur number 10. But before we go, let's dip into the mailbag here. We're going to start with Damien, who's talking about X-Force number 9. He says, this issue blew me away. It's the first acknowledgement that someone is altering the Resurrectees. Domino may not realize that she's been altered against her will, but the other characters are noticing. My money is that it's Beast as the leader of X-Force who is telling Xavier or the Five that Domino wants her trauma removed. I can't imagine that Xavier is actually fully aware of what X-Force has been doing. This might also explain why Jean is not involved with this mission. Maybe Beast wants to keep this secret from the Quiet Council. And I think you're absolutely onto something here uh, in suggesting that Beast might, you know, might just have the most to lose should some of the X-Force secrets begin to leak out. Um, this is actually some uncharacteristically subtle storytelling. And I, and I wonder if we're going to start seeing Jean and Sage left off of more X-Force missions going forward because, you know, he doesn't want these things getting to the Quiet Council and he doesn't want them getting back to Xavier. Um, now, I, I would say that this is definitely a Dawn of X bombshell moment in that it confirmed some of our suspicions about the protocol process. I mean, we've been theorizing for the past 75-ish episodes here. So we're getting answers, or we're at least getting we're getting some of our suspicions just confirmed. Um, we now have actual confirmation that alterations can occur. Resurrectees can be for lack of a better term, rolled back to a more productive or less traumatized version of themselves. And this might open up almost too many story possibilities, doesn't it? Um, It makes me wonder if, should this era continue for a few years, just how recognizable some of these characters will even be um, from, you know, before Hoxpox. It's very, very interesting uh, how... 
how we are just building things from the ground up in a way where it's like, okay, well, that element doesn't work, so let's get rid of it. So it's very interesting. It also makes me wonder about a book like Hellions, because should a Hellion die in battle, will they be resurrected as exactly the same as they were before death? Or will they be altered to make them more productive and less dangerous? You know, I I know I joked about it before, but is Hellions like a literal suicide squad? Like, is this just a way to uh, put these characters into extremely dangerous situations wherein they die? You know, and then they could be brought back as more productive and less dangerous. And uh, all without the Quiet Council having to actually invoke a death penalty, right? Because how hard would it be to just take the orphan maker and put a put a put a adamantium claw through his skull, then grow him again in the in the uh, in the hatchery as something a little bit less dangerous? It feels like that could be something that could come down the pike eventually. But here we are with Hellions, where these characters might be seen as expendable because there's there's more value in their resurrection than there is in their current state. Just some food for thought that uh, now I can't stop thinking about. So <laughs> it's, uh, it's interesting. It's very interesting, especially in light of everything we're seeing here in uh, X-Force number 9 uh, as, as it pertains to the, the altered resurrections. It's uh, a lot to chew on. A lot to chew on. Uh, Damien continues with, It's interesting to me that the mutant night spot is launched in X-Force. It feels like more of a New Mutants kind of event. Joshua Kassar is really earning his place on the new on the new Young Guns promotion here. He's topping himself every issue and is capable of anything. He is equally at home with horrific body horror as he is with a tiki bar. He is just fantastic. And yeah, I too was uh, very surprised to see the Green Lagoon here. Uh, like you, I, I assumed that this would be a little aside in a lighter book. Um, and I'm... I think the first time we heard about it was in Excalibur when Betsy gave Rachel the Warwolf puppy. So I think I was just assuming we'd see it in Excalibur or maybe in X-Factor, since that was kind of a plug for Rachel going into X-Factor. So when I saw it in X-Force, it was very, very strange. And uh, you're, you're right here. Kassara's work here is wonderful. Um, I love the way he made everybody fit, disparate sizes and all. I really can't get over just how hulkingly huge he depicted Apocalypse as being, and it just looked amazing. Looked, I've never seen such a disparity in the sizes, but it, it made so much sense. It was just so cool looking. And I, I don't follow the news or anything, so I didn't realize they were still doing a Young Guns promotion. Uh, I think I stopped paying attention to those when they tried passing off uh, John Romita Jr. as a Young Gun back around 2007, 2008, when he was like 60. <laughs> And I don't know But uh, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts On a very, very pivotal issue In this uh, in this Dawn of X lineup here Definitely a red book In my opinion here A lot of, a lot of very good stuff Coming out of that one uh, Next, we have Andrew Franklin Telling us why he stopped reading The X-Men This was a question I posed a few episodes ago Where I uh, we talked about how One of the common questions is, how did you discover the X-Men? Why did you stick with the X-Men? What made you pick the X-Men? And something we don't talk about so much is, why'd you leave? You know, what was it it that made you walk away? You know, was it an internal thing, an external thing? Was it a book thing? Was it a creator thing? And uh, it's an interesting question, I think. And Andrew here is going to tell us why he did. 
He says, This was a hard question for me to to find an answer to because the truth is I don't actually remember why exactly I stopped reading X-Men. The first time I really stepped away was right after the Age of Apocalypse. I had been reading all of X-Men Volume 2 and Uncanny at the time and was already diving deep into the back issues and was getting into Generation X. And I remember being very excited that Cannonball was finally going to get his due and become an actual member of the X-Men. Then I read Uncanny X-Men number 322, the issue where Juggernaut gets jobbed by a mysterious new villain called Onslaught. And I saw maybe for the first time the unending cycle of event after event, or building up to the next new threat, right after the last one, which was right after the last, and so on and so on. And it fatigued me. I continued to read Generation X for a while, but I stopped caring about new X-Men comics for a long time. I was very much into Claremont and kept up my ex-fandom through back issues. I was also an avid reader of Wizards, so I kind of kept aware of what was happening there. I came back in after the Twelve, not sad I skipped that, when Cyclops was taken over by Apocalypse, if you remember that. But I wasn't fully back until my hero Claremont returned. Well, sorry about that Claremont run. (laughs) But uh, you mentioned something uh, that I feel very strongly about. And that is, uh, you know, promotions in comics. Like, literal, like, job promotions inside the comics here. Because I thought it was really cool when Cannonball got promoted from X-Force to the X-Men proper. It gave the team this feeling of, like, prestige. You know, something that, you know, good mutants could aspire toward. And I feel like that's an element that's missing these days, like, big time. And not just in the X-Men, either. Um, Like, uh... If we go past a uh, post-Heroes Return, uh, Avengers Volume 3, we had Justice and Firestar promoted from the New Warriors to the Avengers. Felt like a big deal. You know, that's something that characters could be proud of. You know, now they're part of the big leagues here. Nowadays, I mean, who isn't a friggin' Avenger? And what mutant isn't an X-Man? This was actually one of my bigger problems with the uh, New 52 over at uh, DC, because they launched Justice League with Cyborg as a founding member. But to me, Cyborg is a Teen Titan who, just before the New 52, during the Brightest Day cross-event, he was promoted to the Justice League. And when it happened, it meant something. It felt important because it felt like a graduation, a validation, just an attaboy. You know, you've made it this far, welcome to the big leagues, you know? And hell, most of the Brightest Day era Justice League was graduated Titans. Uh, Dick Grayson was Batman. We had Wally West, Donna Troy, and Vic. It just felt like the next logical evolution of the team and those characters. And what's more, it felt earned. Nowadays, I I mean, what what does it take to be a member of an elite team? Jack. Nothing. I mean, Smasher, Squirrel Girl, and friggin' Slapstick have Avengers ID cards. Where's the prestige in that? If everybody's an Avenger, then who gives a crap, you know? Um, On to event fatigue. Definitely a real thing, and I felt similarly to you. Um, That first issue back in the Prime X-Men books where Juggernaut was punched across the country by whatever the hell Onslaught was originally intended to be, yeah, not my favorite. Um... I remember being very excited for Age of Apocalypse to be over because I wanted I wanted things to get back to normal, right? But after Age of Apocalypse, I had this weird, like, day-after-Christmas feeling. You know what I mean? Like, where you were looking forward to something for so long, 
then it's just over and done with, and we're on to the next thing. It was kind of uncharacteristic for Lobdell to hit the ground running like this without giving us all a moment to catch our breaths and reconnect with our characters. What's more, when he wrote this, Lobdell didn't even have the first clue what Onslaught was going to be, so it was just some stunt storytelling uh, that he was hoping to make sense of along the way. I've actually got a quote here from uh, Scott Lobdell from uh, Comics Creators on X-Men from Titan Books. Uh, Lobdell says, We had just come off the event-style Age of Apocalypse storyline and had decided to start doing stories that focus more on individual characters. All the X-Men creative people gathered for a big conference, and Bob Harris basically said to us, If you could do any story, what story would you do? I seem to remember that Warren Ellis said that he would like to do a story where the members of Excalibur team just sat around and drank beer at a pub, but he knew Bob would never let him do that story. Bob told him he could do that story. When Bob got to me, I said I wanted to do a story where the X-Men are at home and they suddenly hear a whistling sound. They run out to the front yard and see a massive object flying through the air. It hits the ground in flames and skids the length of a football field. As the dust settles, everyone runs up and sees that it's Juggernaut. He manages to utter just one word before passing out, and that word is Onslaught. Everybody in the room was really intrigued, and they demanded to know who Onslaught was. I told them I had no idea, but I just thought it was a cool way to open a story. Imagine someone so strong they could hurl Juggernaut across the sky. I ended up doing that opening sequence, but I still didn't know who Onslaught was. Now, when Lobdell was asked... For a little clarification on creating a character that he didn't actually know anything about, he would say, That's how I usually work. Some guys work out every last detail up front, but I tend to unwind my ideas slowly and just follow a character or a storyline. I feel like I'm somebody who has a clothesline that's all knotted up, and I follow the line until I get to the end. Hopefully, a story or a character will reveal itself by the time I get there. So yeah, that's as much thought was put into Onslaught. At least, you know, straight out the gate. Uh, yet you are also lucky that you skipped the 12, because that was a massive letdown. And I totally remember Cyclops being taken over as Apocalypse's host, which would actually lead to a miniseries that incoming Marvel president Bill Jemis declared as being the sort of story Marvel shouldn't be telling. He did this while it was coming out, by the way. So uh, it was probably seen as a huge vote of confidence for, uh, for Joseph Harris, who was writing the thing. So... There you go. Uh, Andrew continues. I continued reading all the way through the Morrison-Austin run, and as an aside, Morrison is one of my favorite comics creators, and I was huge into him at the time. And at first, I did not like his run. To me, he clearly didn't care about past continuity or characterization, and this gave me great anxiety. My favorite author was on my favorite superhero team and was just tearing it apart. I eventually calmed down and came around to it, but I tell you this because even though I really, I don't really like the current direction, I know that I might start to come around. And after Morrison left, I just stopped, and I really don't remember why. I wasn't mad he was leaving, and I didn't have any negative opinions about the incoming creative teams. I think I was just tired of the X-Men at that point. For a long while, I was reading mostly Vertigo books because I was a cool, edgy teen, and I think X-Men just fell victim to ha my having to choose which comics to spend my little amount of spending money on. Even Havoc's prominence during the time wasn't enough to keep me around. And yeah, Morrison did feel a bit wibbly when it came to continuity, at least early on, though he did claim that he read every single X-Men book before starting the project. 
And uh, that's usually what he does. I know when he when he took over the Batman books, um, he said he read every single Batman comic from you know nineteen thirty nine or whatever it was. So uh, yeah, I, I usually that usually gives me you know a chance to give him the benefit of the doubt. Uh, plus, the fact that he's also one of my favorites uh, is a pretty big help in that as well. I'll usually buy anything with his name on it, even if I <laughs> never get around to reading it. I, I've actually been buying his. The Green Lantern series is, and I haven't even cracked the cover on one yet. Uh, and I'm I'm actually still sitting on a stack of his Origin of Santa Claus issues that I haven't bothered to read. So Morrison will usually get a pass from me, and I'll I'll usually pick up whatever has his name on it. And I didn't get into Vertigo books until I had like more disposable income, because for me the X Men came first. Everything else was a distant second, so I wasn't gonna. I wasn't going to try anything if I could no longer afford the X-Men books. And I remember one of the very first times I visited a comic shop in Arizona, I went to the counter with a couple of X-Books, and the guy working there started making fun of me for reading X-Books instead of the Vertigo books, which is, I mean, it's like, I'm just trying to give you money, dude. (laughs) Why are you giving me a hard time? Uh, Which, it's weird. I think that's kind of given me an odd impression of Vertigo fandom uh, that I, I don't know that I've ever let go of, but uh, Havoc, Havoc, yes, Havoc was prominent during this run, but uh, the way he was treated might actually cure someone of being a Havoc fan. It wasn't wasn't great. Uh, Andrew continues. I did check back in for Deadly Genesis and hated it, and I remember around that time Mike Carey was writing or going to be writing the X Men. I loved Lucifer, his series for Vertigo, so this caught my attention, but this was when they were doing the fallout from Deadly Genesis with Vulcan and the Shi'ar, and I had no interest in that at all. So I guess that was really the first, the final nail in my X-Men buying coffin, Deadly Genesis. That's very interesting. That's very, very interesting. Um, it's been ages since I read Deadly Genesis, but I remember being a bit mixed on it back in the day. Because it felt very Marvel of the day to me. Uh, you know, that the Marvel chestnut of everything you thought you knew was wrong. You know, I felt like we were getting that an awful lot. I think if you were to scan in like every previews catalog for the past you know, 20 years and do like a control F for everything you thought you knew was wrong in the Marvel listings, your computer would break down because there would be just so damn many of them. This was very Bendis-like stunt writing. Basically a stunt looking for a story. You know, I don't know that it was a story looking for, uh, you know, an event. It was more, hey, we have this we have this stunt. Write a story around it. Plus, they killed Banshee by sucking him into a jet engine or something. It's like, really? At first, I mean, of course, we have to kill a Silver Age character because if uh, everything you thought you knew was wrong is, is rule one, rule two is kill a Silver Age character. So first, we got to do that. Second, this is how we do it? We suck them into an airplane engine? Eh. Um, I wasn't keen on the Vulcan reveal, though, according to upcoming solicitations, we might be about to get ourselves an all-new, all-extreme Summers Brother. Now, Lord only knows how they're going to actually make that work, but uh, they are claiming that this this new X-Men Legends series, or whatever it is, will be in continuity. So, who knows? (laughs) Maybe we'll be surprised. Um, Now, Mike Carey, he did some good work on uh, X-Men, which turned into X-Men Legacy. He actually really worked some magic there. Uh, 
using continuity to tell good stories. Uh, he even brought back my first ever X-Villain, friggin' Hazard, from X-Men Volume 2, Number 12. Uh, the run that covered Vulcan and the Shi'ar, that was Ed Brubaker, the same guy who did Deadly Genesis, uh, and he wrote like a 73-part story called The Rise and Fall of the Shi'ar Empire that ran through like eight years of Uncanny. Um, I'd recommend checking out the Carrie stuff. Maybe not so much the Rise and Fall, but... Uh, the carry run was uh, was really good Really paid tribute to a lot of the things that came before So if you are interested in checking out some of that stuff I would recommend it uh, Andrew wraps up with Thanks for letting me ramble on Until it's revealed that I'm just sentient bacteria Make my next lapsed And uh, ramble away I mean thank you so much for sharing uh, This was a lot of fun learning more about your ex-fandom don't, don't ever think you're talking too much I'm totally cool with uh Learning as much as I can. Uh, this is part of the fun. So thank you so much for uh, for taking part in the uh, in my highly scientific survey on why people stopped reading the X Men. Next, we have Jeremiah, who's sharing his thoughts on the Dawn of X Wave One Number Twos. He says, Chris, I wrapped up my reading for the number two issues, and I'm listening to the last couple of podcasts now. I've already mentioned which books I liked and didn't, but I wanted to just share a little more here. All of the issues felt like number two issues. They moved the stories along pretty well across the board, but there was nothing quite so earth-shattering as the number one issues. This is to be expected, as now we're starting to really develop what is to come over the next couple, the several months would expect. The point is, they were good comics, but with the exception of X-Force number two, there was nothing that had me flipping pages wicked excited to see what happens next. Now, it's been a little bit since I read X-Force number two, but I remember uh, the first few issues of X-Force really liking except for some of the dialogue. Because this was a, this was very Percy dialogue, very forced stuff, very, um, very like pseudo philosophical sort of, you know, college freshman sort of conversation. And, and no disrespect to any potential college freshmen who are listening here. It's just, it felt very forced. Jeremiah continues with uh, one of the things I like about all the comics is that they're sticking with the story continuity across all the issues. It isn't like you have to read each book, which is nice, but the shared timeline is nice to see if you are reading them all. That being said, I thought with Professor X being killed in X-Force number one, I felt they should have had more repercussions or urgency about that fact across all of the number two issues, with the exception of New Mutants, maybe, because they're off in space. That's the only thing that I wanted to, that didn't happen. And yeah, totally agree. Um, that was one of the things that I was kind of concerned with, was... It's like, okay, well, the leader, you're a leader, and the guy who could bring everybody back is dead. And uh, they're dancing at Carousel, you know? Nobody seems to be all that concerned outside of, I think, Magneto talked to Quanan about it in uh, Fallen Angels number two. I think that was, like, the only mention throughout those issues there. Very, very strange. And, of course, X-Force number two, but... I, I thought that that should be a uh, an across-the-board sort of a record scratch sort of moment now that tightness uh, it's gonna go away <laughs> the uh the continuity is going to be a little bit wobbly um the books are gonna uh, the release dates and the way i'm covering them is probably not the order in which we're supposed to read them so as you're following along in the anthology books you're probably going to be reading them in a different order than i'll be covering them i know for a fact that that some of the things that we've covered are wildly out of order compared to the anthology trades. So, I mean, we'll, we'll do the best we can to keep everybody apprised, but uh, 
just a, a word of warning, I guess, that some of our some of our reading orders will not match up. Uh, Jeremiah continues with, I felt generally the same about these issues as I did the first ones. Some had better writing than others. The art was pretty good across the board, with X-Men and New Mutants being the standouts for me. Here is how I would rank each issue. His number one book of the number twos is X-Force number two, an exciting comic that really has me that has me really wanting to see what happens next. Number two was New Mutants number two. I like the way these characters feel. There's a comfort there that makes the book quite enjoyable, and the art is fantastic. Number three is X-Men number two. I want to rank this lower just because there wasn't much to the book, but I like the dialogue. I know you thought it was a little forced and silly, the art and what it could be building to with the mysteries of Apocalypse such as they are. And yeah, I think X-Men number two, if I'm not mistaken, was uh, Cyclops, Kid Cable, and uh, I guess we're calling her Prestige now, Rachel, on the other island where I said that Cyclops was coming across like the goofy sitcom dad. So yeah, I I wasn't. (laughs) I thought it was a little corny, the dialogue. Um, Jeremiah's fourth book of the number twos is Marauders number two. He says... I felt like they're trying to create excitement and tension between the White Queen and the Black King with the whole Red Queen mystery when we all knew what was going to happen because it was telegraphed so much earlier. It was just a miss. I don't mind the stuff with Kate Pride. That, that for me, is where the drama is. Why is she behaving the way she is? I'm looking forward to see where that goes. And uh, we have, uh, we've talked about Kitty, and I think Maraud is number two, and I, I'm probably making this revelation for the hundredth time. That was the book where I was kind of just like over this new take on Kitty. I was just like, oh, this is too much. And I think I even bumped it down to second or third place for the week because I just couldn't stand how annoying Kitty was. But then uh, Damien had brought up that every time we see Kitty drunk, it's she's like she's dumping the, the, the liquor. She's like trying to look the part rather than actually doing it. So that's going to be interesting to follow up on you know, when, when she returns. And hopefully we'll start getting some answers on, you know, why she's been, you know, begotten here. Why she's just not allowed to cross through these Krakoan gateways. Uh, Hopefully we get some answers pretty soon. I haven't heard anything, but then again, I haven't been looking for anything. So hopefully, (laughs) hopefully it'll be a nice surprise. Jeremiah's fifth book of the number twos is Fallen Angels. He says, I'm putting this above Excalibur just because I was not as confused as I was last issue. This one was a little more coherent. Still don't love it, though. And his worst book of the number twos is, of course, Excalibur. He says, there just isn't a lot here to get my engines running. The art is top-notch, though. Agreed. Agreed. Uh, I don't remember. I'm pretty sure I had it where Excalibur was my fifth book and Fallen Angels was my sixth. So very, very close there. Jeremiah wraps up with, Still like the overall story and want to keep reading. I love the show and hearing all the feedback and your thoughts as you go through them in each episode. Well, thank you so much for uh, being on this ride with us here. Um, This has been... This is a lot of fun. (laughs) This is a lot of fun to do and share our ideas. And I love the fact that we're at all different stages in the reading here because... It gives the show more of an evergreen feel, right? I mean, we could talk about things going back to the very, very beginning or up till today and even with a little bit of hinting to the future here so you never know what we're going to be talking about here it keeps me on my toes because i gotta remember (laughs) all the you know 60 or so hours that i've spoken into this microphone about this stuff but uh i think it's also good for anybody who's popping in or just be bopping through the episodes here or has a particular 
issue of the Dawn of X run that they want to hear someone talk about. So I think that's a lot of fun. And I, I appreciate everyone out there for being a part of it. Speaking of which, my good pal Joe Crawford is uh, trying to get back into the X-Books, and he had uh, reached out the other day to ask, you know, which which of these series is to really glom on to? Which, which are the ones that are, like, must-reading? And I gave him a few suggestions, you know, the entirety of Hoxpox, of course, um, X-Force number one for the big deal with Xavier, uh, X-Men number one, six, and seven, which I think are the, the strongest of that, and all of Marauders and the space issues for New Mutants. So, and I'm pretty sure he's going to be picking up the anthologies or maybe following along via Marvel Unlimited, which is another fantastic option. But he has some thoughts on uh, Marauders number one. He wrote in and said, Red Marauders number one this morning, and Jerry Duggan is probably my favorite Marvel writer right now. I love his Savage Avengers. I listened to the X-Men number one episode yesterday, and I love the format. There's something creepy definitely below the surface, as Hickman is wont to do. And yeah, Jerry Duggan is killing it. He is killing it right now. Um, even though the last issue of Marauders probably wasn't my favorite, it's still the most... Um, Consistently solid book of this uh, of this entire line, and he made Kid Cable work. You know, the Kid Cable issue. I was expecting to just hate it, and here we were having a really really good time with it. Jerry Duggan is definitely among the the top tier of Marvel writers right now. Hundred percent. I haven't read Savage Avengers, but with me and Avengers, it's all or nothing, and I just don't have the the mental <laughs> the mental energy to dive in on. How many Avengers ongoings are there now? Like 18, 20? Or maybe there's only like two or three now, but I, I don't know. It's still too much stuff for me to catch up on. And uh, yes, the summer house scene in X-Men number one, there is definitely, you know, no pun intended, there's something sinister there. And uh, it creeps me out just to think about it, and I'm looking forward to seeing a little bit of the uh, veneer start to crack uh, in, in some coming uh, chapters and installments. But... I really appreciate that you're going to be on this ride with us, Joe. I'm so happy to hear that you're going to be getting back with the X-Men and uh, look forward to hearing more of your thoughts as you work your way through here. It's a really good time, and I'm so happy to have you with us for this uh, for this reading experience. But uh, that's where we'll leave it for today. If anybody out there would like to get a hold of me, you could do so via Ace Comics on Twitter or weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You can find blog posts and show notes at chrisisoninfiniteearths.com or xlapsed.chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. You can talk to us about whatever you want on 90s X-Men on Facebook, and you can listen to the entire Chris and Reggie audio archives at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. So, one more giant thank you for everyone spending their time with me today, uh, and until next time, as always, I will talk to you again real soon. See ya. See ya.